0: Hello, welcome to Compliance Corner Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon and I'm joined today by Suzanne Spradley. We're both benefits compliance attorneys here at NFP and we're here on this podcast to take on some healthcare reform topics and give you a bit more information that you will need to know to stay tuned with what's happening on the ACA. Uh, It's compliance, it's the law with a little history thrown in, but we think it's fascinating and hope you do too. Uh, So, Suzanne, let's get right to it. Let's talk about Inauguration Day. Uh, It didn't take too long there for President Trump to act. Um, What's the precedence here? Were there any other recent presidents that have acted on day one with an executive order? Well, indeed,
1: yes. I mean, Trump signed his first executive order on the first day uh, that he was in office. And um, he went on to sign four more that week, as we know now. But it doesn't you don't have to look very far um, in history. to go back to just Bill Clinton, who was the last president who had issued an order on the first day in office. And his order related to ethics in his administration, so it certainly wasn't uh, affecting something as broad sweeping as the ACA. Uh, But nonetheless, I don't think it's that unusual for presidents to
0: act on their first day in office. And you mentioned ethics uh, under President Clinton there. What, What types of actions have presidents used this executive order for?
1: Well, probably the most famous use of it was the Emancipation Proclamation. I know all of you have probably heard of that, but many weren't aware that it was an executive order. But it was obviously used for good. It was used to free all slaves that were living in the Confederacy. At times, presidents have used the executive order beyond their authority. Um, And so, for example, President Truman, he nationalized all the American steel mills and placed them under federal control. And he was trying to prevent a strike by the United Steelworkers of America. And uh, so before they walked out, he issued this executive order. But if you can just imagine that, a president, by just the stroke of a pen, by signing an executive order, he took over an entire industry of privately owned companies and put them under federal control. So that was obviously going beyond what an executive order is intended to do. And and in fact, the Supreme Court did uh, rule that he had overstepped his authority. Um, But so you see there's kind of a broad sweeping or there's a broad range of topics that executive orders have been used um, for in the past.
0: Indeed, it sounds like quite a broad, uh, broad, broad application. Where, Where does that power originally
1: come from? It is from the Constitution. So Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution refers to the office of the president as the executive. And it contains this very vague statement that gives the president the power to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So it's this faithful execution of the laws and that terminology that the presidents have used throughout history to issue executive orders. Um, If we look to which president was the most prolific, it was Roosevelt. And he issued by far the largest number of executive orders. He did it between the Great Depression and World War II. But he issued close to 3,700 executive orders. And that compares to, if you think of George Bush or President Obama, they issued fewer than 300. So quite a
0: discrepancy there. Right. Very interesting. So let's go back to President Trump and his first executive order here. Um, And that order directed members of his administration um, to utilize their authority to act to minimize the unwarranted economic and regulatory burden of the ACA. Now, I was quoting the language there directly from the order, um, but what does that mean, and, and is that important? Well, uh, yes and no. It's it's important. The order is
1: largely symbolic, and there's only so much um, uh, there's only so much that executive order can do. If you even read further in the language, you can see that it continually references taking action consistent with the law and to the maximum effect permitted by law to loosen the ACA. So there's certainly restrictions on what it can do. Um, what I wish, we we represent employers, and so that's the position that we, we look through. That's the lens that we look through when we're evaluating things. And what I wish is that they had specifically listed employers in the order. They listed eight other stakeholders um, for purposes of of defining who they wanted to loosen the the effects of the ACA for the burdens of the ACA and then included individuals and families and healthcare providers health insurers patients recipients of healthcare services medical device makers and then finally it said purchasers of health insurance but it didn't specifically say employers and if you're given that 49% so almost 50% of people covered by insurance in the United States are covered by an employer sponsored um group health, group health plan, my thinking is that they should have at least explicitly listed employers as one of the key stakeholders.
0: All right. So thinking about that, what can the administration, what can they actually do under this executive order? We mentioned some limits there, um some constraints from the law, but what can they what can the administration, the heads of the agencies actually do? Um, to the ACA? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we know that from middle
1: school, Congress is the one that can really make substantive changes to the law in this context, the ACA. So, so what by executive order can the administration do again within the confines of that law? If you look back to the order again, it referenced the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act. So it said certainly if they're going to make changes in regulation, they've got to go through the proper notice and comment period, which is it takes time. Um, So you have legislation, you have regulations, what else is there? Um, Trump can certainly affect things like in areas that the administration has discretion. So if they they could grant waivers more easily for the state innovation waivers, for example, and make it easier for the states to come up with their own ideas of how to approach health reform, they could also loosen the standards by which they grant hardship exemptions. So they could enable more people to um, be exempt from the individual mandate. So there are different actions that they can take without congressional, or why they're biding time until the regulations are changed through proper notice and comment period. Um, so I would expect um, some action to be taken, um, and if if it st- starts to take like look like it's going to take too long for for either Congress or the agencies to act.
0: Right. So you mentioned some flexibility there in enforcement on the individual mandates, some of these waivers for states to come up with their own. Sort of alternative approaches. What about the employer mandate? If we're looking at it, like you said, through the employer lens, is that something that could be delayed or um, uh, pulled out, basically, by this executive order?
1: Yeah. I, again, that's a that's a really that's a great question because if we look at the confines of the law, does the ACA give the administration the power to um, uh, waive entirely the enforcement of a provision? I mean, certainly, if we look to the Obama administration, they use the executive office to uh, delay enforcement of the employer mandate and reporting and non-discrimination. Um, but delay is different than complete waiver. And so it's, it, it, you know, great greater minds than mine will have to determine whether the ACA permits waiver and not just delay. But what will be interesting is because of the groundwork that the Obama administration laid in terms of how it used its executive or- order or executive office in implementing the ACA, it has laid that groundwork for the Trump administration to do the same. So I think, for example, that we could see a continual shift of this power from Congress to the president to to determine or dictate when a law becomes effective. Um, And what will be really interesting is if lawsuits are brought against the Trump administration for actions taken through executive order or by the executive office, Um, the court will look to its predecessor to see how the previous administrations had used their office. So this could be uh, could be interesting. But I don't think that there's clear clarity around exactly what type of actions the administration can take
0: without um, congressional action. Right. So definitely some flexibility, though, and maybe the overall directive coming from the president here through this executive order to Um, try and put off health care reform enforcement and delay some of these um, requirements under the ACA until perhaps the Republicans can come up with a replacement plan. So that's an interesting transition there. Uh, We've seen recently uh, some congressional action on that front, right? A couple of uh, senators introducing a bill. Uh, outline sort of a replacement option for the ACA?
1: Yes, I thought this was very interesting. We saw two uh, Republican senators come out the gate with their own bills. Senators Bill Cassidy, a doctor from Louisiana, and Susan Collins from Maine rolled out the Patient Freedom Act. I actually reached out to some of our colleagues in uh, D.C. and asked them if, if the other Republicans were blindsided by this, because clearly, They were trying to work together to come up with a comprehensive Republican plan. And then you had this one rolled out in front. And they said, no, this is certainly they weren't blindsided by it. They were aware of it. This uh, Cassidy had actually been talking about this for some time. Um, And it does possibly it was part of the strategy. Who knows? Um, But the Patient Freedom Act is actually it's a Federalist dream. So it pushes that authority down to the states for them to come up with whatever form of health reform they want in their state. So they can keep the ACA if that's what they like. They can take those same funds and use it in um, a different type of federal plan that uses HSAs, or they can say, I'm going to do it all on my own. I don't want your federal funding because I don't want the restrictions of the federal government. I want to design it as I see fit. So you would think that this would have bipartisan support. There's something in it for everybody. There's the ACA, if that's what you like. There's the repeal of the ACA, if that's what you like. But I think, unfortunately, what we're finding is that neither side is in support of it. Um, that's not to say we shouldn't take a
0: deeper dive into it and see if there's some valid uh, policy. Right. So asking that question, what are some of the more important or unique aspects of this bill? And maybe address that specifically through the employer lens.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think the most interesting is the fact of pushing it down to the states for them to create their own nirvana of health reform. Um, Because we, we, are representing employers. We look through it in that lens. And uh, for an employer, we have many employers that have multi-state um, businesses. And so I think that would be an administrative nightmare to have employees in blue states and in red states and try to effectively um, determine how you're going to provide health care coverage across your company. Uh, it, but it also raises some really interesting questions. For example, would ERISA preempt these state mandates? I So mean, typically ERISA preempt state mandates. It didn't preempt the ACA. Obviously, that was a federal law. I wonder if this would be a quasi-federal state um, uh, type of law and, and would ERISA preemption work or would it not work? That's That'll be something interesting to watch for. As an individual, you live in one state, you work in a different state, which state laws will apply? I mean, these are not things that we haven't struggled with in other areas. So, Uh, Certainly an employer with multi-state coverage would have to abide by things like spousal coverage, state continuation laws that varied by state, um, other HR issues certainly that vary by state. So it's not something that we can't overcome, but it certainly creates this just a messy framework.
0: Right. So those are some interesting aspects of the law for sure, creates some several new questions um, that would have to be addressed. What about HSAs? Can you talk a little bit more about that part of of the bill and and maybe that H, the idea of HSAs in a Republican replacement plan going forward.
1: Yeah, I think you know this is something that you hear both Trump speak about. You you certainly have heard it from other Republican proposals that are likely to come out. Is is the idea of just of relying upon and expanding the use of HSAs under this Cassidy Collins plans. They refer to it as a Roth HSA, so it's very similar to how a current HSA is used. Um, but there are some taxation differences I'll touch on in a second. But the idea is that the federal government will use basically the same amount of funds that it used for premium tax credits, give it to the states. Um, they will use it for individuals who are not enrolled in some type of federal plan like Medicare, TRICARE, Medicaid, Federal Employee Health Benefit Program. And they will use place those funds into a Roth HSA. Um, they will auto-enroll people into a catastrophic plan if they are uninsured. Um, and they can use that HSA funds if they are in employer-sponsored coverage, which is interesting because that gets to the complaint against premium tax credits that they were only available in the exchanges. Um, it will be income adjusted and adjusted to take into account employer contributions. Um, but it you know it does enable low-income workers who are working for an employer to remain in their employer-sponsored coverage. So, I, I would think an employer would be happy with this approach, but, um, you know, that there's still so many questions to be answered, it, it's still unclear if it would really be a benefit. Um, some of the key things to take away are an individual would have to stay enrolled in insurance coverage to continue to receive that uh, money, the contributions from the federal government, the contributions into the HSA would actually be included in someone's in- income. So, it would be taxed as income. But if you had investment, uh, some increase in your investments income, then that would not be taxed. And certainly the distributions that are used to pay for health insurance coverage or medical care would be tax free as well. So, you know, for the first proposal that was been that's out of the gate, it was a bipartisan approach. And and for that, I think we could be happy. Um, It's not likely to be accepted in its current form or possibly any form, but nonetheless, um, it is. It does provide some interesting framework to talk about and to start the, uh, the thought process of what will work in this country. Should it be state-based? Should it be federally based? Um, should we expand HSAs or are there other ways to help care for um, individuals, especially those that are in, uninsured? So um, one of the things that I will watch for in future proposals is whether they address employers specifically. So will they take into consideration how – Their proposal impacts employers, especially one of the things we want to watch for is how they will affect the employer exclusion and how and the tax exemption of coverage that's provided through your employer. And so um, it the Cassidy Collins plan did not touch on that. And for that, we can be grateful, Um, but we will just have to watch for what future proposals bring. So that will be for a later podcast.
0: Right. So a very interesting sort of launching pad here into Uh, the Trump administration's, uh, the era of the Trump administration, and sort of perhaps a blueprint of what a Republican replacement plan might look like with this uh, Cassidy-Collins bill going forward. Yes. Is there anything else we should have as a takeaway from uh, the executive order or this new law, Suzanne?
1: Yes, I don't think so at that time. I think uh, we can say in compliance terms, that's a wrap.
0: Yes, that's a wrap. Until next time, thank you for joining us.